the sacred wisdom and beauty of Indigenous Australia with Uncle Noel Butler, a Budawang elder of the Yuan Nation. Welcome to the Vital Veda Show. This is a podcast show where we explore the laws of nature and within that health, consciousness, spirituality. And yes, it's what I do, Ayurvedic medicine. I practice and teach it in Sydney, but also all around the world. And it's rooted in this Veda. So this Ayurveda, which I practice, called the science of life, is part of the Veda, which is the laws of nature. And from that also yoga, meditation, Stabachaveda, Vedic architecture, Vedic astrology, they all come from. And it resonates very much with the indigenous culture and tradition of this land that I'm living in called Australia. And I'm absolutely blessed and excited to bring to you a very, very special man who I've had the honor to spend time with recently and I look forward to spending more and more time with, Uncle Noel Butler, who's a Budawang elder, which is the country south of Sydney, south coast New South Wales, about two to three hours south. And he's a UN elder. He's a qualified teacher and mentor. has been working as a cultural educator for over 30 years. He's had first-hand experience of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal history, culture, society, and shares it generously all around the world. And conservation is his forte. He grew up in the south coast of New South Wales in a family of eight who were living off the land in the bush. And we talk about his beautiful childhood. His knowledge has been passed down from his elders to enable a sustainable lifestyle, even in today's modern world. Uncle Noel delivers this knowledge, his knowledge, on Aboriginal culture so generously, with absolute passion and even urgency to understand this, and you'll find out why. So this podcast episode is further working to, you know, most people listen to this, uh, you know, non-Indigenous, including myself, craving a connection with, with the culture but not only that, this is to highlight the wisdom and beauty of indigenous culture so that we can appreciate it and be in harmony together in unity because there's this obviously strong gap between non-indigenous and indigenous culture. And there's just so much wisdom that we can learn from it. So you're going to all learn about that today. Remember to check out the show notes for each episode, you know, especially these show notes. We've got the resources towards, you know, Uncle Noel's programs. You can go spend time with him, learn with him. Um, Uncle Noel and Trish, you know, you, you're probably not going to be able to get the spelling of these indigenous names. So check out the show notes. Every episode that we record has sometimes more extensive details of what we talk about. We elaborate it in the show notes. And I'm also going to share with you one other thing. If you would like to spend time with Uncle Noel and Trish, we're going to be organizing a camp of going to them and, and regenerating the land. So stay tuned. The best way for that is sign up to the Vital Veda newsletter. So you just go to vitalveda.com.au and click newsletter and sign up. And that we occasionally, very occasionally, send out knowledge and wisdom and special offers. Like, So we won't flag your inbox. We hardly get to around doing it once a month. But we'll inform you when that happens. Another thing I'd just like to share with you is if you appreciate this show and appreciate this knowledge, please leave a review just on iTunes um, or on whatever, Instagram, comment on the post associated with this, whatever you'd like to do. Okay, my friend, enjoy the show. Awesome. Can we do some Welcome to Country where we're recording on today? Uh, Where we are today, yeah. Welcome to our little part of the world. We're in Budawang Country. Budawang is one of the family groups, one of the 13 family groups that belong to the Yuan nation and our language is Durga. So the proper way 
wada wada yuni wajin kaba wajimin wada gujaka ilamani buduwing or yuni duga anoa nua noa nabu gabun burach. So welcome men and women, children, little gujaka to uh, our part of country, the buduwing country, part of your country, and here is where my family is and here is my home. And Gabon Burach is good to talk to you. Yeah. Good talking. Beautiful. And even though, though for you listening all over the world, I think we can still have that connection to this specific country which we're recording on today. Even through this podcast interview, you're going to get a sense of this Budawang country because Uncle Noel is Budawang. He's the land, the country is him, the same thing. So, And it doesn't matter where they are. If they can hear it through the sky, through, through uh, Father Sky, well... Maybe we can send those same sentiments and feelings through the same way. Beautiful. So I just want to introduce you as well, and I'll get you to introduce yourself. So we met a few months ago and had the absolute pleasure of being able to undergo a cultural awareness training week where we, you know, or you can call it a retreat, whatever, but me and my partner and some friends, we got to spend time with you and learn about your culture, learn about the Indigenous culture of Australia and what I think what was really amazing, so profound for us was it's so, as a white fella living in Australia, we've craving, almost thirsty for this connection to indigenous culture, but it feels so inaccessible for us white fellas. And what we loved about you is your generosity about opening and so generous with your knowledge, like unbelievably generous. So yeah, just thank you for that. And that's so it's really for for a deeper purpose, I guess. That's for that. Thanks for those um, kind words. But uh, you come to think of it, not realizing a lot of the times of about what you just said about how hard it is to get access to that knowledge and that information, and it is such a pity still today in this you know uh, this time of my life or our lives that we feel it or think that we've come so far ahead in this country after, what, nearly 240 years of having Aboriginal people, Indigenous people living in the same land, the same country as everybody else who's come here. And yet all that knowledge and all that history of around 100,000 years that's been here to keep people like myself surviving, why I'm still here from my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, here by simply by looking after the land and each other, which is our culture, and that other Australians have been denied that. You know, if you live here, this is your home, you're an Australian, doesn't matter what country you come from. But being denied the access to all that wealth, the richness of that history, by being denied the right to be able to teach it and share that with other people. And I believe that's been a deliberate part of history mm. and continuing on, that it is your heritage. As an Australian person, it's your heritage. And whatever we can do, that's why we do it, is to share it so that the longest living culture known to human beings will continue. So we really need the opportunities to be able to do that. Hmm. There's a lot of us around this country that are willing and offering that knowledge. It's just not there. The opportunities aren't there. Mm. Yeah. So, so powerful. And I want to add some other things to introduce yourself of my experience with you. Yeah. Um, one other thing was you definitely have this in the Vedic system we call Dharma, which means kind of your purpose in any given moment. And it's clearly to share this knowledge because you've 
traveled all around the world, had done festivals in front of like what hundred thousand people in UK and all these India. India, you've mm-hmm. been to in, you've been to villages in India of congregations of indigenous cultures. Like mm-hmm. you've you've done a lot and you share a lot and you're so busy. You know, as a as a grandfather, as a 70, 72 year old man, you and Trish, your wife, she's like the Shakti. She's the organizing power and er, making you busy with interviews and sharing the culture, which is camps, people coming over and learning. So that's one thing, that purpose. And another thing I like to share is which me and my partner were particularly very inspired by was your relationship with your family and especially your wife. Such an amazing, caring, loving, supportive man, real man. And lastly, the other thing is how fit you are for a 72-year-old. You're, you're how, how above the life expectancy of an indigenous man? Uh, well, well I, it's not um, even to 60. I, I think it was about 58 or something is the life expectancy, which is still... I think it used to be about 17 years less than other males mm. in this country, mm. uh, no matter where you live or born, but it's not 60. So, yeah, I'm a little bit over that, but, and, and that's because of my wife and family. Yes, <laughs> and because of your connection. I think because so many, I think one of the reasons for that low life expectancy is that disconnection and that Western, you know, white influence of what stripped them away from their culture, which is what informs their health. And so, you know, when we were together... You were showing us how to dodge boomerangs and you were jumping up in the air. And then we went to your property and, you know, did some bush regeneration. And you were just going hard at, like, pulling stuff out. And we were carrying water tanks across the property. Like, you were were. very inspiring in your fit. So, that's the last thing I wanted to add to introduce yourself. Have you got anything else you want to say about you, your your people, your culture? Oh Well, things like that, you know, it's a well-known fact with our people one of our biggest health issues is mental health. And that's where taken, not only like my family and a lot of other families have and family members taken away and put in institutions, made the change, forced to change, taken from country, taken from home, not allowed to continue your cultural practices, not allowed to learn from your grandparents and so on. All that during my life has been very, very destructive so it's very hard to continue your culture. So if you're not allowed to be yourself, that's destructive. If you want to uh, destroy somebody's well-being or mental capacity, isolate them from another human being. And that's a well-known fact. So we've had that in our history. Fortunately, we're still here. We're still around. So to be able to take it out of country, we're fortunate to be able to be still in country, living in country, being here so... You know, we're grounded. I'm born here mm-hmm. and I will pass away here and I'll remain here and my spirit will stay here on country and whatever I can do in that time to keep that going, then that's my job. And with the the support of my family all along and, you know, my previous wife who passed away, my my first wife and my children uh, and, and my wife Trish is... We're a living example, we believe, of how it, not how it should be, how it can be. And that is that we have this sharing capabilities of listening to each other, uh, talking to each other, understanding each other, but accepting each other on equal terms. We say we're the same but different, eh, you know? It's, we are capable of doing that. Every human is. 
instead of try and command somebody or direct somebody or force somebody to be like somebody else. So we do that in a way with our relationship together that strengthens both of us. So we have that acceptance as most of the things that I know, Trish knows, my wife knows. We do things together. There's no me and you in our whole relationship. It is we, we, Mm. we use one word and we don't use, we don't know such thing as hate. There's only love. There's that sharing with everyone and with everything. And my whole cultural values is based on those old laws of everything has the right to live and we must respect every living thing and that we should not allow one species of anything dominate and control anything else. So it's so detrimental that it cannot recover and replenish itself. Mm. And that's something that should apply to all humans, our lives today, with each other, with our environment. Uh, our environment here is our family. You know, all our kangaroos sitting down there under the trees, and that, that's our family. And we must look after that because mm. all those things along with our four elements like Father Sky, Mother Earth, Minga, Grandfather Sun, and Grandmother Moon are the things that give all humans, all living things, life. And if we can all do that, and, and my family, myself and Philip, you know, my nephew, uh, Felix, all those people that you've had a, a little bit of a contact with, that's how our feeling, philosophy, whatever it is you want to call it, it's just being a human being, mm. being a compassionate, caring person. Mm. So I think it's we, we don't do it deliberately. That's who we are mm. as people. And I think rather than just talk about it, I think lots of people over a lot of years have been trying to say that and, you know, for your studies and that on healing and, and stuff with the plants and having that respect for those plants and that relationship as well. It's the same, but it seems to only be in the circles of those of us who have that same compassion, I suppose, mm. for, for life and that sharing capacity. I believe that if people can get something like that from us and then mm. share it with someone else, we'll get that big circle getting bigger yeah. and bigger and we can make this world a better place. Beautiful. Uncle Noel, one thing we do at the beginning of every episode, we we ask, what what did you do this morning? Because in, in the system of medicine we practice, it's important to have a morning routine. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, do you have a morning routine or what did you no, do this morning? No, because we're still so fractured in our lifestyle today, still trying to get back here on the property. And uh, you see, we've got friend come up from uh, Melbourne and is lining our little shed, which is supposed to be my workshop and gallery, to get back into work. And so we're backwards and forwards and we just, you know, every day is different. Mm. Uh, this morning it was just, you know, getting up early and I always have a, you know, big pile of just water first and then we went for a walk and walked all around the, the headland and back round the hill, a really good walk. And we had the coffee on the way and then back up home and got ready to come out uh, out here to the property. Where I'll stay today after talking with you mm. today, uh, just, you know, walking around and observing everything that's growing here and what isn't. And then keep going on doing a bit of maintenance and making sure that all the plants we put in grow. So Beautiful. 
but tomorrow who knows like yeah. we were we were always taught by my mum and one of the last things my mum said before she passed was she said son don't you ever change from being the person you are today mm. but you must live every day as it comes mm. so we've sort of right out of that habit of being forced to work in today's society mm. and so on of not making plans that's futuristic because you don't have control especially if it involves someone else or somewhere else is living today but really living it so you can you know go to bed at the end of the day and say I've lived today mm-hmm. it's another day of my life that I've gained something or given something and I'm quite happy with it and that again comes from my old cultural beliefs that no negativity can be taken to bed with you. Mm. Everything has to finish at the end of that day. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And for those, we'll, we'll talk later, but when Noel's referring to like fractured days in life, it's because he's he, at the moment healing his land, which was pulverized by bushfires, which we'll speak about later. Mm. And I'd love you to speak about your times as a child because when I heard you talk about those, it felt like for me you were so intimate with the land. You were basically living off the land. And that, you know, I think is such a beautiful, they're beautiful stories and inspiring. And so, yeah, tell, was that the time in your life where you were most intimate? I mean, I remember you were carrying water, you were yeah. hunting and foraging. So, yeah, Well, we didn't have any choice in those days. Uh, you know, when we sat in the circle and we all shared those moments and experience and talked about our lives and shared that. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, except if we get those circumstances, but, you know, there's so many good stories, but there's also a lot of not-so-good ones. But mm. when I look back on that, the reason why I have a lot to share is because I was given a lot, and I wasn't given all this information, this knowledge to keep to myself. You have to share it to improve someone else's life. But, you know, right from the start... When, you know, my mum and dad, uh, like when they got married at the the mission in uh, La Perouse in Sydney and that was all done, but uh, because it was illegal for an Aboriginal man to have anything to do with a white woman and my mum being Scottish and dad Aboriginal, when they met, they had to find a, um, uh, a lay preacher and they got dad's cousin who was married to a white man and she took off her wedding ring and gave it to my father. Mm. They got an Aboriginal, say, lay preacher to perform a marriage ceremony. My dad put that ring on my mother's finger so it was legal and then came back down to country where it was safe and all us kids were born and little camps all along the coast in country, long as there was nowhere where welfare or police car could get into and we lived off the ocean by the sea with aunties and uncles and by the time I was born we were at a camp on the beach a little bit further down south but in country and mum and dad came back to the Aboriginal Reserve in Ulladulla which was granted by Queen Victoria in the 1860s for the protection of the Aboriginal people in this district. Well we were still living there when I was two and a half when we were the only Aboriginal family left and so we got forced off there and the little shack knocked down because my dad had MS and was going blind and dumped in the bush. 
and then looked after and really supported by local farming families, who some of those people are still here today, mm. their families, and the timber cutting people. And so I grew up there in this little shack. Uh, part of it, uh, I, mean, I still remember, was dirt floor. We had no electricity, no water. We carried the water up from the creek, which runs down into the harbour, still at Ulla Dollar, uh, in old kerosene drums. And we just had a big open fire for Mum cooked everything on. No one was ever turned away. The uncles and rallies would all come and visit Dad and sing their songs by the fire and sleep by the fire. It was just wonderful times mm. that had, you know, we were really connected to family as they moved up and down the coast at call in. So we heard stories and heard songs from that. And our food, because, you know, we had no car. You know, we, we didn't even have shoes. We walked everywhere. And we had to get our, most a lot of our own food. So... We learnt where to, the, what food to eat, where it was, when it was available. So all the things of reading nature, of you know what is in season and what's seasonal and what isn't, where to go to get it. We learnt from time we could, you know, little kids, only little kids. So we had to go and cut the firewood after school and go and get, you know, we lived on on really really terrible food. We lived on lobster and abalone and <laughs> and a lot of fish and shellfish. But we learned all Sarcastic. the things in nature. Eh? <laughs> He's being sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> we learned that by um, having to get a lot of our own our own food. So didn't forget that. It was one, one way of, of passing that knowledge mm, on, that mm. cultural knowledge onto us. And that's what I value today is that I still have that knowledge. And even though when I left school at 14... All I wanted to do was get out of it, get away. I didn't, I didn't want to be what I knew where we'd probably end up, you know. And, you know, another one of my brothers was taken away and that wasn't a nice, you know, memory. So um, that was the time of the stolen generation. Yep, that certainly was. And ev- so that is, for those who don't know, because, you know, when basically they were taking Aboriginal kids away from their families and putting them into, as not said, like missions or yep. homes so that mm-hmm. they would essentially want to... I- assimilate them into white culture, mm. Christian, maybe mostly influential and, yeah, a lot of nasty stuff there. So so you were, at that time, did you have to hide in the day? Like, what, did, I think your mum sent you to the bush every day, was it? Or what, what was that? Well, once we you know, got our food and cut our wooden out of an afternoon or and weekends, uh, as we got older, we could go and visit friends. But you know, I remember not going in other people's house. I'd stay outside. But, yeah, we had to play and disappear. You know, we played in the creek and, you know, climbed trees. We did all sorts of stuff away from the house. Mm. The house was just in a little clearing and it wasn't easy. It was just an old gravel clay road. And when we came dark, we'd have to come home. And, you know, and if we were a little bit late, you know, mum would call out. She had this way of calling out, you know, Henry. All this thing you'd hear an echo right through. So Mm. we'd all come running, come home to dinner Every now and again, mum would give us a old sugar bag, you know, Hessian bag with our clothes in and send us off to one of the farms or one of the local families early in the morning and we'd go there and we'd stay there and that was one of mum's ways of protecting us from welfare for the coming to take, you know, more kids and we do believe, I believe that was dad's doctor that was the one who was letting mum know that when they had to come from the next uh, big town. And one of the last things which, you know, it's not a good memory is when mum told us 
a few days before she passed that one time um, she said, oh, you probably don't remember, but one time they nearly got all of you. They came mm. up late in the afternoon and mm. we was all in the house and they were taking all of us. And it's the first time my mother broke down and cried and begged them not to separate her children because the girls would have been taken to Cootamundra and us boys would have probably be thrown in Bombardary at now and then probably shipped off up to Campsie to Kinchilla and then oh. out to farms and given to farming families and that Kinchilla, I saw yep. in, the, in the exhibition one of the Kinchilla boys' home in Kempsey. Yep. And we're going to share how you can learn about that at the end of this episode. But that right. was full on. It's horrible. That was yep. one of the most. That was when I threw that exhibition, which is talking about real history. Mm. That was the most full on thing that I saw. Yeah. And tell us about Hunting Swan, because I think the story <laughs> you told me, that was a very good example of reading what? the signs of nature and yeah. being in tune with nature's cycles and rhythms. Well, and how we old were you? Followed all the oh, then probably from when I was. Well, we we all went together. We go with the older brothers, and then when we became the older brothers, you know, a little bit older. Probably from the time I was, uh, let me see, probably about eight, through to about twelve, maybe thirteen. Yeah, part of that thing for food is we learned all the different signs. You know what. Trees are in flower, what fish were breeding or schooling up and going to a certain part or out to sea. We learned that by nature, by reading nature. And the things with the swans, Gunyu, and, you know, our, our business, what we call is Nuragunya, mm. which is swan country, uh-huh. is when they molted, like all birds molt their feathers, they, all the feathers fall out and new ones come through. But with the swans, the flight feathers... We knew we had a gap there of just about a week or a little bit more. By the time the old feathers came out and the new ones had come out far enough that they could fly. Now, a very big, big bird, like a, like a goose. And they take a lot of energy to take off off the water. And poor little things, you know, they'd run, run along the water with their big web feet flapping away and trying to get up. But we could pick them out. And then when we'd go to disturb the flock of swans and they'd take off... Like we'd then separate the ones that couldn't fly, and then we'd pick out one that we thought was a young a cob, a young male, and then we'd swim it. We'd just keep driving it until it got tired and tired and tired, and then sort of push it in a circle and, and get round and, and catch it. And the poor thing, we'd drown it and take it home, and that was food. So it's understanding all those things that's in there. I mean, that was our food, and we knew how to, uh, how to catch it. Beautiful. What, did you have any honey around this area? Or? Oh, we did have honey. It wasn't the native bees. We've got native bees here, mm. and, and we've got two little hives. We've got back since the fire. But the honey that we used to get was from European bees that escaped from hives mm-hmm. and made their nests in hollow mm-hmm. logs and that. So we used to get some of that. Not a lot. I remember when they up the road, they put the new rubbish tip in up there. I think there was about four hives in that big area they cleared because I remember we had lots of it, just putting the hessian bags mm. over a drum and just let the honey drip out of it mm-hmm. and then eating the honeycomb. So yeah. that was one good thing. But the other thing is all the all the fruits and, mm. you know, all those plants that when we you have what we've planted here since the fire, over 2,000 plants, it's not only plants, it's food for all our birds and uh, animals uh, to come back or get and release and uh, they're bush food mm. plants as well uh, and it's the most nutritious food more than the superfoods we call superfoods that come from other places but people don't use it 
But those things to us, it was not a case of going out and getting stacks and stacks of that particular food and piling it up on your plate and mm. cooking it up for 11 people. It was snack food. Mm. So if we're going over to the beach where, you know, family was over there watching the schools of fish traveling along and knowing the gutters and that or where, where it was and somebody on the with their little rowboat and the net on and my dad and other uncles and brothers would be up giving the signals from the top telling them where they were going, what they were doing. All that was all part of learning to understand nature and the cycles. When those fish would take off and go to run to the next safety spot, you know, my family and uh, stuff would just look at the sky and see there might be a cloud bank come from a certain area and they knew that those, what those fish were going to do. Mm. Were they going to run back to the reef and hide or were they going to mm. go to the next one and keep moving, you know, north or whichever direction, mm. knew which direction they were going to go. It's reading what's around you. Yeah. And, and like when the rain's coming, when the ants build their nests up, there's all sorts of signs that'll tell you what's happening. The circles and rings around Grandmother Moon mm. tell you how many days away. Jiruwan and the Kurrawong flies down through here in the valley calling out in the morning. It means we've got Gurugamar, the nasty westerly wind is only a couple mm. of days away. So all these things, we we grew up with it. Mm. And it's such a pity that all other people and Australians going to school in this country still haven't had the opportunity to be able to learn all that because yeah. this is what we have. And we can share this with the rest of the world. Mm. It's, it's ancient knowledge. It's the oldest knowledge. And we can lead the way. We can show the way mm. um, to those who want to listen. But, you know, through, you know, just our connection and relationship and through mm. the camp and all the mm. people we've met for that is people who are willing to listen and learn. And we really need much, much more of it. So then we've got, you know, the more you learn, then you can share and pass that on with someone else. And I believe that we've got a lot yeah. more, more interest and recently so and it's profound knowledge like people think oh we have modern technology we don't need that but it's it's you won't get that because it's it's so much more profound and it's you, you can't be supplemented with the modern technology so and another thing I want to ask talking about your father so he he he, he ended up becoming blind right mm-hmm. and staying basically bedridden for a number of years and and you had a fire burning all the time how long was that burning for well, he kept the fire when Dad would get really bad because he couldn't walk and couldn't even lift his arms up and we you know, had to feed him his meals and that. But he never stopped teaching us, mm-hmm. still telling us things and, you know, how to identify birds. If we'd find see a little nest and climb up and see, see the eggs and you just get his fingers and space it apart of how big it was and tell him what color it was and he'd, he'd tell you the call of that bird and he'd wow. say, you go back and go back to that little nest but don't touch anything and... You know, you go, and he said, that little bujan will come down and talk to you and know you're not going to hurt it, and mm. then you'll meet that bujan. So he was like that all the time. But when he was getting sort of worse, we had to keep the the fire didn't go out. We'd roll a, a backlog over before mum would go to bed. In the morning, we'd push it back and just put the kindling on, keep it going, because that fire burning and the smoke would keep the bad spirits and that away so that he didn't get more you know any worse any sick so that was part of our culture and similar to what we still do when we do a smoking ceremony and a healing ceremony with the smoke and the leaves from different plants so that's still a very important thing for us 
you know, through myself and Philip and other family members, that we continue that on as part of that cheering from Mother mm. Earth, from the trees and, you know, like different trees, like the eucalyptus renewal because, uh, you know, even here the devastation with everything burnt, not a green thing left on the property. But then the little epicormic buds shoot out from under the bark and put the leaves out and take in, you know, grandfather's son mm. and put all the nutrients back up until all those leaves come back on the tree and then they nurse plants and they all fall off and go back and fertilise a, a nutrient for the mother tree to keep mm. going. So we use those leaves and we use other ones from different plant species that are for renewal and for nurturing new things that are coming and growing, like new shoots coming up from seeds. So we still do that. We still use that as a practice. And one of the ways that we share and love to share, you know, we're like yourself and people from the camp and people we have a connection with so that they can be mm. part of that and have that connection to Mother Earth and feel grounded and wanted and belonging. So that's an old practice that we still do and like to pass on yeah. a chair. I, you can feel that when we're in ceremony or even just sitting around or eating. When you have that fire burning, it's like a protection. Mm. It's like it's an entity in itself. It is. Yeah. So it's it's there to protect, to metabolize, to do so many roles. Yeah. When we burn wood, you know, wood's never dead. You know, you see a dead dead tree. Look at the dead trees we've got around here. That'll eventually fall over or we'll have to take them out. They have not recovered. Mm. The fire was far too hot. But it's not dead. So even if we use that for something else or we use it for a fire, you know, if there's no bark left that we use or leaves for ceremony, we use the wood. So it's still got a story to tell. Mm. You put it on the fire, we use for cooking, when we still do the traditional way of cooking under the ashes and that, or on top of the coals, it's still telling a story. It's still delivering you something from Mother Earth. And the other thing about it is that, that the trees and the leaves on the tree, we all know, take in the carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. We all need oxygen to live. So they're purifying the air. Mm. They're giving us that back. So... There's still that same thing as when we burn it. Mm. It's that energy, that stuff that that plant is giving us apart from mm. the yes. war warmth. So it never stops. Mm. It's that, you know, we try to call it recycling. Yeah. No, we just say it's never ending. Mm. It's always there. And there's always something from Mother Earth and from Bana, the rain, and that is our life. Mm. It is our very existence. And they're just all little stories and messages. Yeah. And, you know, I know when we sit around that fire, that you just got to look at a fire. And I think most people love sitting around a fire and looking at a fire. It's telling you something. You learn from it. You mm. should be open and learn from that. What is that giving you in your life? Another thing I've really learned from you and speaking to learn more is the power of birds. Like, we should expand our awareness to what's going on with them. Oh, they're brilliant. Look, people think they're brainless. You know, like I remember when I was young, they could say, oh, you're a bird brain. You know, you've got no, no sense. They are highly intelligent. And when you learn about a bird and understand all the different birds, like out here, we know the different calls. When they change the call, we just listen to that jurinan, that magpie. They're just having a chat. But then if something comes over, my manyunga, you know, the big wedge-tailed eagle comes over, you hear the different call that makes. And then that bird will call that, that call out 
the other birds know each other's different calls as well. And you'll hear it relayed from that and might go to the uh, bow birds. Then they'll make a warning call, a different from their normal call, and it transfers through the different bird species that are there so all the birds are aware and know there's danger. So when you're living with what people call nature, you understand all that. That's your family, and that's what you care for and protect. They are like that. They can share all those different signs among each other, and they'll pick it up. And then there's Naran Naran, the lyrebird, you know, which we tell our stories and sing our songs about. Trish writes these songs and sings them to the children. It repeats all the calls of all the different birds and the sounds that's in its area. And, you know, Twani's not going here today because you get towards the middle of the day, one comes up near the shed up there and calls and sings, and you can just sit there and recognise all the different birds that have come back here since the fire because they're mm. the calls that he's relaying. Mm. So they're very intelligent. And I'll tell you what's happening with the weather too. Mm. And I can remember Dad saying every night you'd hear a little noise, and we'd all rush outside and there'd be the gunyas, the swans, and they'd be flying over the top. So we'd all look up into the sky and have a look. And like this, you know where they're going. They're going north. So what's happening? There's a lot of rain coming. There's going to be floods. And I uh, could tell how far they're going to travel, so how widespread it's going to be, by the length of the, the neck, the leading part of the V formation, how long that is. And when you understand all that and have a look, the longer it is, because that leading bird, the others are trailing off the back of it, and because the next oldest ones are out there, the younger ones are right out on the outside. They're being pulled along, you know, by the suction of the other birds going through. So those front runs can only go so far at the lead, and then they swap and drop back, and another mm. one will take the lead. That's how they work. They're not stupid. And how long that leading part is... Is how far they're going, so the rain is coming all the way up the coast. And when you look at it and think of it, that time of the year like now, with all that rain coming, why are they moving? Because it's before the nesting season. With all that rain, it's going to flood the nesting sites. And even if they put new nests in, when the young cygnets hatch and come out, they, they're not no big child. enough to be able to reach the, mm. the, the weeds and the seagrasses down the bottom of the lake. The lake's no longer shallow, it's deep. So that's not silly. It's amazing. <laughs> so good. And does Durga, which is the language, which is rare because most countries in Australia will be named after, will be the same name as their language, but from Purwang is a different name to Durga. So that's unique, right? that the language itself is not the name of the country. Yes. Does Durga have a meaning? Because I, I just, it might buy any, okay. Cause, or an energy? Because, I mean, in, in the Vedic system, Durga is actually a name for Mother Divine. Yeah. Or like the courage of the mother. So, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I was never told, <laughs> so I don't know. But like you say, it's a bit weird, I think, here, that we go to, what, 391 recognized countries with their own distinct different language and over 400 dialects of those languages. Our language is only spoken in our country, from the Shoalhaven to the Snowy River. Uh, 13 different families responsible for a different part of that on behalf of everyone else. But we all talk the same lingo, the same language, which is Durga. Yet we're called or classed as the Yuan people. 
it's something that I accept it because if we want to be recognised and accepted, that's what's been put out there to say who we are. And yet all other people like Peter Jarjara or Kicha, Jaru, whether it's Gabi Gabi, Gunyandi, Nanawal, whatever it is, it's the people are known by the language they speak. Mm. And yet here, we're not known as the Durga people. Yeah. It's Ewan people where a couple of my uncles and families agree with what I say, what I feel, is the Ewan class or called the Ewan people because Ewan is our word for man. And it's not sort of black man because there weren't anyone else. Yeah. It was just man. And then we say, you know, Gaba, Gaba, Gaba for white man, uh, Wajiman for white woman. So we've got Ewaney uh, Wajan for man and woman, uh, which is us, is Aboriginal people. Gujaka for child. So we've got all those words. So why do we just have the name of a group of people saying man? But when you think about those people who recorded those words and wrote them down, the early settlers in this area, were they uh, linguists? No. Um, Were they anthropologists? No. They were explorers and people looking for more country to settle. So the ones who had an interest with the Aboriginal people and decided to write it down, you know, I can imagine somebody saying, you know, up at the mission or the reserve where Dad was born in the late 1800s, coming up to some Aboriginal person saying, look, who, who, who are you? Who are you? You know, uni, uni. I'm a man. You know, like virtually what's wrong with you? I'm a, mm. I'm, I'm a man. So they write down this word, uin. Mm-hmm. And all these misinterpretations and spellings is all around us in our district was just talking this morning, Trish and I, about... People always ask somebody something about mollymook. Oh, you know, it comes from a bird or something, a mollyhook. I said, no, it's bollymook, bollymook. Aladala is nulada. We've got all these different words we still use, but somebody else, a white person, has written down what they think they heard or how they're going to spell it, and that's where it stayed. So there's no coming back and asking us and mm. getting these things correct to teach it. So we got these two ways, Balgan with the mountain, and mm. then again, Pigeon House Mountain. You know, Captain Cook didn't find it. It was never lost. Mm. And he he didn't name it because it already had a name. So there's this double thing that, you know, it's hard to try and share or pass that on through the legal system or through the current education system, but we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. I love to hear your view on the didgeridoo. Some, it's just various views according to different, I guess, countries and cultures in regards to who can play it. Or so, yeah. What, what is yours? Well, it's not our instrument. We the uh, what you call a didgeridoo, yetaki, whatever name, who, where it comes from, is from the north. I was always told that it's really from around the East Kimberley, across that top middle part of northern Australia. When you think of it, that's where the white termite-eaten smaller, lower shrubs like the coolie bars and the box trees are. And here, we got termites here too that eat wood out, but, you know, there's over 200 different types of termites. We used clapping sticks, clapping, singing, clapping your thighs, hitting boomerangs together. We did all that and did a lot of singing. 
But the didgeridoo, like other instruments across Australia, Aboriginal instruments, is part of the trade routes, and there was Aboriginal trade routes right across the country where people shared and exchanged dances and stories and songs and tools and so on. This has always been the case, and that's why when Captain James Cook sailed up the East Coast when he came across from New Zealand, everywhere white people went, the Aboriginal people already knew. I knew about them and might not have seen them, but they knew about them. And that was passed on with the fires and sending the signals on, runners on of what had happened. More so when all the atrocities started, when they're pushing and moving settlement further out, there was warnings. And one of those things I saw right up in the Kimberley of all this beautiful art painted in the back of a cave. And over the top of it was painted a gun, a rifle. And in another place I saw in the Territory a picture of a horse and a like a stick figure man, with, but it had a distinct hat on its head. And mm. that was painted over some ancient art in another one. They're the stories that were still being shared and mm. passed on and painted. The written word, you might say, of what was happening in the changes in that country. No different from the changes when the ocean came up and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got kangaroos and that carved into the rock faces, which it hasn't deteriorated. Over the top of it, you've got turtles and, and dugong because the change, you know, for thousands of years. We've been here a long, long time, 100,000 years. So we've had volcanoes. We've got stories on that. We've got one uh, just out of country on next country about the fire mountain and how the cockatoo got this tail burnt. You know, those stories mm. are thousands and thousands of years old. 7,000 years ago was when the uh, the water, the last lot of water came up to where it is here now. 12 miles off Aladala or Nulada is mm. the continental shelf where then the real bottom of the ocean is mm. way down there. So our stories in all different countries around Australia are all different, but they're all about the changes and recorded or told over millennium. That's invaluable history. You know, we shouldn't have to dig up bones of my ancestors and and wrap things and dig up and destroy um, sites and so on to then try and age it or measure the distance of our eye sockets and so on and then Mm. try and tell us about that. We can tell people about us Mm. in this land Mm. and and benefit everybody. It's one of those things that I really feel strongly about today of that those practices still being continued on still destroying, destroying our art sites and the petroglyphs in WA. All these things are still going on, uh, so-called legitimate, and yet not only do we lose, all Australians lose, but the world loses. So you can't just throw away and disregard the longest living culture known to humans when we're all humans. Mm. So there's a lot to learn. So these are things that... Whatever we can do to benefit that, and there's lots of other Aboriginal people that, you know, I'm sure were willing to share their knowledge if there's opportunities and done the correct way, not just being stripped of everything and ripped off and mm. all that stuff being stolen and taken and locked away again. We really need to change, and I think if we keep doing and keep going and sharing them with people like, you know, yourself and your partner and all the other people we have a connection with, which is a lot more in this part of my life than it's ever been. Beautiful. And then you share it 
and then mm. keep it going, yeah. we can put all that ancient knowledge out to benefit future generations. That's be- and that's what we're doing today. Mm. So one of those ways, those parts of wisdom to share is like fire management. So as you said, in, we're in a place called Jamuna Gamya. Ganya or Jamuna Ganya, which is happy camp. Happy camp, yeah. which is again, Budawang country. So it's near Milton, Ulladulla, New South Wales, south coast, south of Sydney, through about three hours south. And this is where, you know, there was huge bushfires all around the south in, was it January 2020? Right? 24th of January, that summer. yes. And here, you know, Knowles had firemen come through and police and said they've never seen anything like it. Mm. This particular property which we're on today was really wrecked. I mean, what were the degrees? That Over 1,400 degrees. Celsius. Yes. 1,400 degrees Celsius. And when we came here, which was probably like, I don't know, a year and a half later, we were like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> it was a really beautiful, it's a beautiful land. And, and the others who have been here before the fires were like, you should have seen it before. It was like the Garden of Eden. Mm. So I want to highlight what you're doing because I think it's so important of how you're doing it now. And you're you're not being influenced by regulations or what is the norm to be doing. You're radically taking initiative to manage this land. And I think that's so important. I think people can learn from that is not going to adhere to the system mm. or the government. And, you know, how, as much as you want to talk about this on this podcast, you can. Mm. But I think it, it's important that you're radically taking action to manage this land yourself rather than adhering to regulations. Mm. So would you like to share what you're doing here with fire management? Yeah, like, it's very, very hard for us to go back over it. Yesterday, we say, you know, live today. But we're here every day and see it. And it's just contributing every day for the betterment to keep going. And, you know, I only just got the word, you know, which I know inside out for fire, which is Garnby. But there's things that block things out and and Mm. because you don't want to remember. But we've had so many dramas and putting up with lots of bureaucratic crap about our fire when we cop so much. It's not so much like we had a cultural camp here of um, seven buildings destroyed like we had accommodation for 14 kids, our toilet, shower block, my workshop, my brothers, our house, the cultural, the education centre, the kitchen, the cooking place. Everything gone, and their vehicles, everything, all our personal things, everything in the house, the, all the buildings. But it wasn't that that was the worst thing for us. It was the loss of having to do ceremony, what there was left of our kangaroos and our wallabies, our snakes, all the, the bones, the, what was left of going round the bush and doing that, you know, set their spirit free. That was the worst thing about this and not having a green leaf or a blade of grass or anything left on the property. But as hard as it was, and we had to come out here and find it ourselves without any warning and report it and then wait until we get down the road. That was the worst thing at that stage about it. But within two days, we were replanting and with the help of community and local RFS uh, fire service and that bringing plants down, community coming from where to help us to keep it going. And we've got to this stage today, you know, where we've got 31 of our 54 species of birds that lived here all the time. We've released 23 
kangaroo joeys that were saved from fires further up the coast and then when they were we, we were just able- patting them before yeah and yeah that's so rare yep. i mean it's the first time we've patted a kangaroo but it's because they've been saved and yes. they've been had human contacts so and they're here been- with us and yeah we're just supplementary feeding him now because it's winter and there were no mothers to teach them anything so we've sort of got to look after them for a while but some of them have got little joeys in their pouch but the hardest thing since then is like still waiting for our approvals to rebuild and the crap we've been going through really is unacceptable for I don't know whether it's been accused or how it comes about and look I don't mind saying this to the rest of the world it is wrong it is absolutely wrong Now, we had no rights to be able to stay here and defend our property or our family, which is our animals, and yet we're being punished again, which is something we're standing and fighting against because we didn't light the fire and we're not allowed to look after our own property the way that we did. I denied that. So you're in the care and control of government departments to look after so-called... Our, our crown land, the, our surrounding. Our insurance, which we had none, our insurance was being backing onto a national park, which is crown land. So the people who look after national, uh, crown land is here is national parks. Their policies are to look after and manage that land so it's protected for all Australians. Okay, well, their method of land management and conservation, as long as with other government departments, this is the result of those practices. It is wrong. So when you've got over a million hectares or over two million acres of land that's totally annihilated and destroyed and all the animals and fauna, the flora, the uniqueness of our fauna and flora in this country like nowhere else in the world is gone and gone forever. We already have the worst reputation in the world for destroying to extinction more mammals than every other country in the world. So when we see this and we get up every morning or come out here and see what this place was like by depending on the protection of governance for our land, and that's the result, there's no way in this world, till I depart it, I will listen to them or take any notice to them. It is wrong when there's got a 100,000 years of management practice the right way so that everything was like it was in the purest condition in 1788 when the fleet of Europeans came here to so-called settle in no man's land, terra nullius, because the people were well and truly here. We are still here, but not being classed as human beings. That whole system of governance and rules and regulations still carries on, and it is wrong. It is absolutely wrong and we really need people to stand together and create change so that we do have a future in Australia for future generations of all Australians and so that we don't see this again. I can assure you that that will happen again in a very short space of time because of the amount of debris from the dead branches and the dead trees that's already fallen on the ground all the understory that is now dying, the weed species that's growing up and is too thick together, it's going to smother itself out and die. It's going to be so flammable 
that it's going to happen again if they don't change their practices like the old days of doing the cold burns, the little sections in each country and being walked on, living on the country so you understand and know everything about it and then burning it the correct way as a healing practice for the land like it's always been done. So this is something I'm very, very strong on and finding out, you know, fires have been deliberately lit for their management and gone wrong, then how can they keep on doing it? We really need to change. Yeah, and just for those who don't know, like, because people who are outside of Australia, what Noel's saying, like, these fires which we had in, you know, 1920, the summer of 1920, 2019, 2020, they could have been prevented with traditional land practices so how big is the land here that that you own it's own? 100 acres 100 acres so all that he's a custodian for but legally owns for now mm. 100 acres so so he's doing they've got projects of doing traditional land management and they're basically just saying you know screw the government i'm doing it my way because i want to protect the land yeah like here just in this valley the first fire we we were saved from a hundred and over a hundred houses and homes were destroyed, and people's lives over uh, just up the road at Lake Conjola. And then four days after that, there's seven of us lost our homes, animals like dead horses burnt to death, and chickens in paddocks, and so on. Lost everything in this little valley, and it should never ever have happened. But what we are doing is doing our own way. We have university graduates coming here. We're recording everything on this property with drone footage. We are marking it out. We're putting my knowledge into science. And so we're putting my old practices into a scientific way of like clearing a little section, cutting down the burnable material, leaving it to stack in a little row. If we have to, we will do a density weight or measurement of how many cubic metres is in that strip, how wide is the strip, then do another one, and the area we're going to burn, we'll record that. We'll do a moisture content of the soil, the air temperature, when we're ready to burn that section, when we know which direction the wind is going to be coming from, we'll know it's going to be a cool wind during the night, which is the cold air comes down and suppresses the flames. So we would burn whichever sections are facing that appropriate way, when that opportunity comes, not what the computer screen tells mm. us to do. We will be doing it our way. So we're recording it with that. I've got a niece who's doing an honours degree as an environmental scientist. She's already got her first degree. So we're d- doing that and putting it back to the university for everybody, whoever wants to take that on. So instead of just talking about it, complaining and saying it's wrong, we all know that's wrong. And all the people in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, who've been affected by these fires from the smoke, we don't know what repercussions are going to come from that for infants and children and elderly people in the future. But we've all, so many people been affected. It should never, ever happen again. Mm. And if we can do that, we're doing that. That's what we're doing now. Um, so that we, it's a, probably a quicker way or a better way for us to show it can be done and work in conjunction with our fire sticks crew, which is a, a lot of Indigenous people right across Australia who are fire specialists working together mm. to be able to perform that 
for farmers or for people who want it. So the legitimacy of us being able to do that, I don't care. Good. We're going to do it. <laughs> That's great. It's so revolutionary. Like, it is. Just like, we're going to do this. Show it as an example. Mm. I think this is going to be huge mm. across the whole of Australia because you're going to have a scientific yes. shown example put out in a great way. How can people get behind that? Because I think this project is so important for the whole fire of Australia. I think with this one, it's just learning or supporting fire sticks, yep, the different okay. groups. And we've got some very expert Aboriginal people on it. Is Chase the books, find out the information, support those groups so that we can get changed because they are willing to support anybody who will listen. And it's not a case of training. They're willing to train. And I've got family here and we'll be involved as, like on a consultancy basis when I'm needed. We've got our own people. And it, like it's not a case of just teaching white people how to do it. It's a lot of knowledge. It's Working, years yeah. of you have to really walk that piece of land. You've got to understand it that symbiotic relationship between plants and animals and birds and you've got to know what species grows in conjunction with other species when they, the, the leaf litter how much is going to be on the ground what what breeds in that area what's the habitat what totem animals or creatures are in that area so you can't disturb any breeding cycle of anything that's the old way and I believe that that's going to take years for people to learn that so if our people have been given those opportunities to be able to conduct those lessons or training camps or get people involved with that, it's a, it's a huge step forward for having greater protection, less loss of life, and less destruction of our environment mm. and loss of our fauna and flora in this most ancient country. Great. We'll put in the show notes links to fire sticks and other places where you can support and get involved. Beautiful. All right, so we're going to wrap up with actions that people can take. I think the essence of this podcast has been just to, and what I've, I think your approach, which I think is such an amazing approach to enlivening indigenous culture is just showing the beauty of it. And by people, white fellas or anyone, just seeing the beauty and then they appreciate it. And then this happens, this respect and this appreciation, because I think that's what's needed is, you know, we can talk about the hardships and all the dark days of what's happened and the negative that's that's sure that's history it's important to know but i think seeing the beauty and seeing the wisdom and then for one to appreciate that then there's that respect that comes so i'll say for one thing people can take action is if you live anywhere in australia go see the exhibition at the museum australian museum in sydney called unsettled that is worth flying interstate to because that is a history lesson that every Australian should be obliged to learn. And it's history which we're not taught in schools. It's true history. And we have an obligation living in Australia to see that exhibition and to learn that history. So that's one thing. And Uncle Noel has got a big, beautiful artwork as you enter, which is a, taken from a, a... Is it a grandfather tree that was from this property, from oh, the grandma, fires? No. Grandmother. No, it was... Uh it was in a national park where we're not oh. allowed to take anything out of. Oh, okay. shock horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing which we haven't talked about is, I'll just quickly mention it while we're sidetracked, but they cannot take, Indigenous people cannot take from their, from national parks. They can't take food, trees, anything from their land. Anyway, that's another discussion. But So that he's got an exhibition, he's got beautiful videos. Those videos were so cool. That was Uncle Max that you were with in those videos. 
Was it? No, that's Philip. Philip, okay. Have you? Oh, right. I haven't yeah. met him. Oh, you haven't met Philip? No, because he wasn't at the camp. That was um, no, he the other bloke come from Lapa. No, he was crook. He came and uh-huh. helped put all the uh, tents and nice. so on up. Nice. I want to meet him. He, sounds, he looks powerful. Oh, Big man. Fantastic. Yeah. He's a continuation of nice. us and our uh, family. Mm. Yeah, great. He's carrying on. He does a lot of welcomes and a lot of things mm. um, for us now. Where uh, is he based? Where is he living now? Well, that's another story. He's okay. living in the bush, back camping out on the lake where we all used to live in a tent wow. because he hasn't got a house and uh-huh. he got it all burnt out and, mm-hmm. and my other brother and, and he couldn't afford rent on the place he was in. But all, mm-hmm. well, this is just continuation. Yes. So mm-hmm. We're trying to get you know my niece settled here to do all the research and yep. search work on our burning. She's in charge of that. Another nephew is doing the recording he's actually a lecturer at uni so he has access to the drone to take all the, every two weeks takes a different section of what we're doing mm. um, and yeah Phillips yeah they're they're all struggling but th- th- this is the thing like you talk about history it is important for people to learn the truth the truth about Australia's history and then accept it and then accept us as equals and have that walking together side by side capacity. And there's so many opportunities we can do so many. to have that sharing mm. from our people with, you know, with your people. Uh, another one of those is, you know, you can come. Am I, am I okay to invite anyone here who would like to come work on the land and do bush regeneration? Sure. You, we've got lots of people coming from interstate, from everywhere. Offering to help, and we love that because it's the families of the people come here. Whatever you do, that's your contribution to the continuation of the culture, of mm. the history, of the stories. Of you know, how many more generations of birds and animals are going to come and feed off the, the plants that you put in? So it's it's mm. that thing. We're all contributing together for healing Mother Earth, for healing Minga, for getting things back on track. It's the start of. An acceptance. So that you, we all have that responsibility. Mm, so you can come here yourself, or you know, we're going to organise us at Vital Veda. We're going to organise a camp here for a few days, where we're going to work in the day on the land, and then wisdom by the fire with right. Uncle Noel at night. <laughs> we're speaking to Tr- we were speaking to Trish about it. We're going to do yes. like a few days, and because uh. basically, what the fires is caused is called a lot of weeds to to come. So we need to do that and clear and get ready for this fire for this mm. traditional burning. And so that Uncle Noel and Trish they run camps which we went to, which we where we met Uncle Noel, where you spent a whole week learning just about the culture, about bush tucker, bush medicine, women's business, men's business. You know, we were making weapons and making instruments, and just a lot of listening and hearing stories and stories and stories. That was powerful. So for that, Swan Swan Country, Swan Country is mm. Naganyu. Nura Gunyu. Nura Gunyu. Yes. So Nura Gunyu has a Facebook page, I'm pretty sure. That's probably the yes. best way to do it. And if they'll have another week camp coming up in, I think it's October-ish, around in October. September, early October. So, I think there you go. So all this will be in the show notes if you want to do it. I cannot recommend that enough. When me and my partner came back, we tried to explain it to people. It, it, we couldn't put it into words because we just had this absolute... We gained so much empathy and compassion because we had a direct you know, experience of what has happened in Indigenous culture. We read about it, but once we had that direct experience, it's so powerful. And 
we have so many people who want to do it. You know, as I was saying, so many white people are interested. They just don't have that access. Mm. So this is why we appreciate Uncle Noel and Trish because they're they're doing that. So those are some actions that people can take. Anything else you'd like to add for those who want to heal? No, I just can't thank you enough for the opportunity for us again to be able to share something and through you and your partner and again through all the, the people that we had on the training camp because it was that sharing of all of us with each other and our stories that brought that connected, that more interconnectedness against with us. There is no barriers. And like this, it's, it's continuing through you and your work and this opportunity to get out to more and more people. And we do need to move forward and we need to move forward together with that acceptance. And during my life, I thought I would make a difference like from my father, my grandfather on getting acceptance and equally for Aboriginal people in this country. I think we've fallen a lot short of my expectations, but I think recently now, and for different reasons, it is changing. We just need to create those opportunities and get more and more people to push for those opportunities to happen because it hasn't happened politically through our education system, through anything else under our governance system, and we really need to be able to do that, to share a greater understanding of this land and this country, not just confined to scientists and records being stuffed away in drawers or information being piled away and kept away from the Australian public and from the rest of the world. We can and need to show the way. So all I can say, yes, is thank you for the wonderful opportunity to be able to share whatever we can to whoever wants to listen. Mm. And we'll do it together. And we're like a kangaroo and an emu, like on the coat of arms. We don't have a reverse gear. We're not going Mm. backwards. We're Mm. only going forwards, side by side. Yes. Thank you, Uncle. Can we finish off with a little song? Trish is the singer. She's the one with the beautiful voice. And uh, what I'll do, I'll sing just a little song that we do for sometimes as a welcome. And it... um, it's a song that just asks for protection uh, by our spiritual connection, uh, again, through birds, from Mirada the seagull, from Maria the emu, and from Mara the fish. So whenever you're in country, we ask that you're looked over from the sky, from the land, and from the water, and that you're safe until you return. Nayanura, Nayanabu, Walawani Mirida Mabura Gurumboga Kayakai Ranawada Kayakai Ranawada Nayanura Nayanabu Walawani Mirida Mabura Gurumboga Kayakai ran a wada, Kayakai ran a wada. So we just ask very humbly for those spiritual connections to watch over you. Powerful. Thank you for listening. Now, I'd like to share with you next time we're going to be interviewing, not next episode, in some episodes to come, we're going to be interviewing one of Uncle Noel's 
nephews whose name is Pirate. His name is Pirate because he's got one eye and one leg and he's come from a very rough, violent, criminal, drug and alcohol background and he's transformed into this boy man. This guy is, has so much spirit and power and he's like an encyclopedia of indigenous wisdom and knowledge and he articulates it beautifully. So stay tuned for this podcast with Pirate Butler coming up another you and man so you just got to subscribe to the vital way to show you know we get to explore the laws of nature which encompass so many things so we can go you know it's about time we've had an indigenous australian on this show been meaning to for a while so you know so many aspects we've had we've had recently robert svoboda talk about ancestors how to honor and support your ancestors that's a powerful episode but there's just so much it's it's the best job i love it so you know again nurugunyu is uh, their website you can have to see the show notes for that n-u-r-a-g-u-n-y-u.com.au uncle nolan trish follow the facebook they'll be updated you know we're going to be organizing a camp to go to their land their property that they are custodians of and regenerating and giving back regenerating the bush you don't have to have gardening experience or bush regeneration experience if you're near south coast of new south wales about three hours south of sydney you know sign up to our newsletter we're going to let you know when that is and it's going to be awesome it's going to be like a little retreat we're going to go there work on the land of the day work about traditional fire practices learn about that and then at night by the fire with uncle noel listen to so much wisdom and learn amazing things which you know, every Australian should do. If you're not in Australia, well, you know, contact your local Indigenous mob. And we speak about this in the next episode with Pirate, with Uncle Noel's nephew, of, of how to really connect to the, as he calls the blackfellas, the Indigenous people near you or, or where you live. So, anyway, my dear friend, thank you for joining. If you want to show your support, please leave a review, share this on Instagram story, whatever it is. Just this, this needs to be shared. We need to, you know, give more attention to the indigenous wisdom of our countries wherever you are in the world okay that's it from me much love